people think of their agreements a little bit more like you would with a sculpture. Because what does a sculpture do? Sculpture is a three-dimensional object. So it literally invites you to look at it from different angles. It keeps giving you more detail, giving you whole different perspectives. And that's really how I would approach and advocate a, an agreement because it shows the things that you, if you didn't look around, you would have missed. This episode of the Unstoppable CEO podcast is sponsored by our referable book program, where we'll create a great lead generating book for you. If you've always wanted to write a book for your business, but never managed to get it done, let us do it for you. To find out if this is a fit for you, schedule a quick 20 minute intro call with me at unstoppableceo.net. Click the book a call button. Now on to the episode. Welcome to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Gordon, and today we've got an amazing interview for you. Uh, today, I'm talking with Al McBride. He is a coach, facilitator, and trainer. He's started numerous small businesses, and he's a regular guest lecturer and facilitator at um, multiple universities in, in Ireland, talking about cognitive behavioral coaching, entrepreneurship, and innovation. And he coaches executives and business owners in all sorts of industries, uh, and really focuses on the topic of the psychological edge in negotiation. And uh, I'm excited to talk about this today because I'll be honest with you, so many of the business owners that I talk to are doing negotiation every day, but you probably don't think of it in those terms. You're negotiating with vendors, you're negotiating with potential clients, and today we're going to get into a method that I think is going to really help you. And I want to use this as an opportunity to help help you be conscious about how you approach negotiation. So I'm excited about it. Uh, Al McBride, welcome to the Unstoppable CEO. Thank you, Steve. It's fabulous to be here. I'm very, uh, very happy that you invited me on. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. So um, before we get into negotiation, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get to the stage of your career? Oh, well, <laughs> where to start? A the, the little bit of bio there gave you a little taste of it. Yeah. Um, I suppose the, 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 the things that are relevant, uh, I was a, an accidental art dealer, <laughs> so to speak, for quite a number of years. I worked in galleries and I went out uh, as an art consultant uh, uh, on my own. And it was really through a lot of that sort of sales experience. But it wasn't just selling... Uh, anything. Art is a very odd thing to sell <laughs> precisely because it is, in the utilitarian sense, it is actually useless. It has no distinct <laughs> use. So that it, it's it's that grand illusion of, of the value that people ascribe to it, you know. So there's an awful lot of emotion involved, an awful lot of, excuse the pun, but framing, as in you know, both the physical and metaphorical framing uh, of the art itself. It was quite a learning curve because there's often uh, what you might call multi-directional agreements or deals or multi-party deals. So there was a, quite a, a lot of complexity to it and a lot of enjoyment. I mean, one of the best things about art I found was that, you know, if you're good at selling art, the artist did most of the selling, you know, that you couldn't, you couldn't upsell someone uh, like you might on a car or a TV or a stereo or something that, oh, well, you know, this car does this thing better that you want for a cheaper price. It's like, and you can move, you know, a potential buyer over it. Art, you can't do that. People have that connection with a piece. That's quite a beautiful thing. Uh, so, so as I said, it was quite a unique thing to be involved in and, and quite an interesting world to say the least. But 
the the 2008 crash kind of polished that one off. <laughs> uh, particularly in Ireland, it was particularly uh, a horrific economic downturn. So I, I went back into my my earlier interest of psychology and through that, as I said, uh, foundational trainings and uh, counseling and psychotherapy, that kind of thing, and then into coaching and training. And it was through the sort of small group coaching, small group training, and then one-to-one coaching that um, that I grew from there. But as I said, in the midst of that, there were a lot of uh, business projects, entrepreneurial uh, experiments, some which went very well or very profitable, some less so. But as we were talking earlier before we hit record, you know, that's what we do. We we dive in, we we experiment, we see what works and then see what we learn from it as well. So very much my attitude. Yeah. So that's just sort of a, a, a basis of it. But this this course that we were talking about, uh, it's called the Goliath Negotiation Method. But what I find interesting about it is that it really is kind of an accumulation of the different aspects of my experience and my own training. So you mentioned there that uh, the the innovation uh, methodologies, you know, design thinking is one of the better known ones. So it's a, these are ways to actually highlight opportunity that otherwise would be missed and how to find different ways and different, as I said, opportunities that are often right in front of you, which I find fascinating because a lot of that is to do with psychology and approach and the questions and the framing and the structure which you go through to actually find these things. And as I said, I mix that with that experience in coaching people coaching coaches how to coach others, right? So that that's, uh, as I said, where I bring it in, where it's been said to me that what I actually do is I train or coach people how to coach themselves and their counterparts to a better and more mutually beneficial agreement. And it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but that is essentially what I do, yeah. It's, that's very interesting. Um, so as you're approaching negotiation, you mentioned the opportunity or the, uh, the, the phrase finding the opportunity. It seems like that's kind of the, the trick in the whole process, isn't it? It is. Uh, I mean, one of, one of the principles that I do talk about is this idea of a lot of people treat an agreement or, or an opportunity. Like, so we can sort of nearly work through an example. So a lot of people say, oh, there's someone interested in working with you or they get a referral or whatever way they often get. Uh, someone approaches them through someone on LinkedIn or whatever that might be for their business, right? So there's a potential, there's a prospect. And what they end up doing is sort of looking at it in a very quite rigid, quite two-dimensional way. So they look at it like a photograph. So what do you do with a photograph? Well, you can move the, the photograph around, but you can't see any more detail. It is what it is. It's stuck. And people tend to think of a lot of their agreements in that way, that this is the service that I offer and that's it. And there's, there's a certain convenience to knowing exactly who you are, and particularly if you're very um, a, a very sort of clear client offering and clear client uh, prospect that that, this, that that makes sense. But what I would advocate is that people think of their agreements a little bit more like you would 
with a sculpture. Because what does a sculpture do? Sculpture is a three-dimensional object. So it literally invites you to look at it from different angles, from, you know, a three-dimensional perspective on it. So unlike a photo, it actually does give you more. You know, you go around a little statue of a head or whatever, you know, you will see the back of the head. You will see what the design is. Was there something else that you didn't spot before? So it keeps giving you more detail, giving you a whole different perspectives. And that's really how I would approach and advocate a, an agreement because it shows the things that you, if you didn't look around, you would have missed. Uh, so that, that that's just sort of a, a little, a little thought on my more my approach that I, I work with on clients to actually start seeing things from a slightly different angle, slightly greater array of opportunities that can suddenly come to light. So can can you give us an example of of how you might uh, you know with with one of your clients? Uh, how you might begin to look at what are all the different opportunities. If as I look at this from different angles, this particular uh, deal or this agreement, how you well, begin to approach that? Yeah. Well, first of all, a, a lot of people fall into almost a lot of people com complain these days about com uh, you know being more and more of a commodity and with AI on the verge of a lot of industries, there's a lot of fear there, you know, of commodification. So the first question is, how do I actually add more value than just the transactional element of what I do? Now, a lot of people are quite good at that. Uh, and as you said earlier, a lot of people maybe in the real estate or law or those kind of areas who are very used to doing deals are that little bit more dynamic. But I've often actually found clients in those areas are equally transactional because they know what they do, they do it well, and they sort of knock them out, you know, and due to efficiency. And that's not a bad thing. But I'd nearly ask the question as a starting point, how can you move further and further away from what AI can't do? So how do you add more and more unique value to that particular client or prospect? And it doesn't have to be a huge amount of things that don't scale. It doesn't have to be uh, something massively time intensive necessarily. Uh, so that's where it starts just opening those questions. Yeah, completely. So it, it really, it, it's almost akin to sort of the basic, you know, marketing question, which is how can I add value? And um, how can and I add value? Absolutely. But people forget that, Steve, don't they? You know, they get into a thing, they're doing well, they're doing a good service, they're probably quite good at what they do. And so they just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, right? Because you, you think you have that down. No, sorry, you asked for an example, and I like to, I do like to answer it. I wasn't being evasive or anything. So, for example, one of the, one of the things that comes to mind uh, was a client of mine, she was working for a sort of a medical engineering firm. She was very good at uh, uh, sort of large-scale industrial quality process, shall we say. And like a lot of people in those situations, they go out on their own. They leave the, the corporate world, go out as a consultant. And like a lot of such people, she was one of her first major client was her old employer. Now she's also trying to build up other work and do other training to get sort of foot in the door with other companies and all this sort of thing. And her previous employer contracting her back asked her to be flexible to their schedule of production that was quite changeable every month. And she was saying, yeah, I could do that. What do I ask for in return to balance for that ask? And we talked through it. 
because she was saying, well, they were already paying rather well, and I could maybe squeeze a little bit more margin out of them. Uh, it doesn't feel like, you know, that this feels like I'm missing something. And so we talked it out. And the thing that when I say it will be incredibly obvious, <laughs> but again, it wasn't something that was on her mind. She was thinking of very solid things like pay or day rate or being guaranteed work. And those things are, are obviously very important. But this is an example of where we can add value, but in quite an esoteric way. So they really needed that flexibility. That was very important to them. But I just said, well, why don't you ask the project lead to be warmly and steadily introduced to his network, who are people exactly like him for the last 25 years who are now in 12 of the main other companies that do exactly what she wants to get into doing. And again, it seems obvious, right? It's not like rocket science stuff, but it really was like, oh yeah, I can ask him that, can't I? And it almost felt like moving from the economic more into the social realm. But he said, yeah, but it's that kind of thing where when you're doing a good job and he likes you enough that he is then comfortable to introduce you in a warm way gradually to, as I said, some of his former colleagues and some of his his uh, equivalence in other companies. And that's what happened, and it's, it's sort of set her up. Uh, but one of the ways just to say that we, we start to do this is by asking, again, by asking better questions. And it's by asking that sort of question of, how do I add more value here? What's, and the one way to look at it, which is, again, the simple starting point is, what's of high perceived value to my counterpart or to the other side or to my potential client? that's relatively easy or cheap for me to give. And vice versa, what can they give me that's easier or highly affordable to them, but is of high perceived value to me? And those are the kind of easy things that you can add to literally sweeten a deal. Because they're, they're, they're known as non-cash items. They're also known as uh, items of unequal value because the actual value for each party is, is different, you know, a very different value. And as I said, in that esoteric example of, 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 the, of the consultant going out on her own, that was very much a value which was, well, how do you put a value on an introduction? If it, if it yields work, then it's a high value. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But you don't know until you sort of you work through the process. So much more esoteric way of, of valuing something. But that's, that's what was of huge value to her, of huge use to her, to have those doors opened. Uh, so as I said, it's starting with the, those cr few uh, uh, crucial questions. I love that. And I think that's, for me, that that really speaks to what you were talking about earlier about sort of taking this agreement that you have and turning it into this 3D sculpture where you can walk around it. You're now moving out of the, the service and the monetary dimension, and you're moving into all of these other dimensions where there is additional value, but might not be tied to the service that you deliver, might not be directly tied to monetary exchange. And uh, I love the way you put it, you sweeten the deal a little bit. So by doing some of these things, you can be different in a way that maybe no one else can be different. You know, that uh, for your client, no one else could offer those relationships. Exactly, exactly. And that's the key thing. Again, if you think of the principle we started with, which was 
where can I add value that's harder and harder for AI to actually just bang it out, right? To do a, a simple process that you do a thousand times. That That's kind of a, an AI or a systems thing. So how do you add more value that a lot of your competitors can't either or don't? So it's exactly what, you, it's exactly what you're saying, Steve. It's having that attitude where when you add those values, just like you were saying, it makes the deals and your agreements that bit more robust because you've insulated your agreement from others trying to jump in and hijack them. Because if you're just doing a simple process, then there's a very low or mild sense of inertia with the client involved, right? They're like, yeah, it's easy to stay with you, but if I get a better deal, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm moving, you know? So, whereas when you have this more unique relationship, dare, dare I use the word relationship, then people are like, oh, well, we'd have to kind of go back to the start. And then this person, even if they're as good as Steve, then, you know, we have to kind of relearn what we're both like. And there's all of this hassle and extra, extra time. And, uh, and as I said, hassle to get back to nearly where we were. So you're protecting the lifetime value and extending the lifetime value of some of those agreements. Yeah, I think I think it's the way that we need to be thinking if we're not already. Um, particularly with the world changing the way that it is, if if you're not looking at where are you going to layer in value for someone and really exploring that uh, with them during the negotiation process, uh, I think you're in for uh, you know for some some tough time. So. What are some of the the ways that you probe for that when you're in a negotiation? Yeah, well, there's several levels to it, as you'd imagine, because, you know, a lot of great negotiators, a lot of good negotiators, every negotiator tends to want to have more trust. So if you have trust, then, you know, there's it's, it's a stronger relationship nearly f f from much earlier on. And uh, as you said, all those things we talked about, it's more robust and it's going to last longer, right? But the problem is most negotiations don't have trust because they're not able to actually get beyond some of those early, relatively thin interactions. And those are natural. That's where a lot of conversations start. There may be good nature, good, there's goodwill there, but they don't start to go deeper. You're, you, so it's really being curious about treating your client as not just another you know, label, whatever your client is, oh, you're type A, type D, type C type of client, you know, whatever those, those little ideas we have, and we put them in a little box, and we presume we know all about them. Because those labels are helpful as a starting point to, to display that generally people in your situation, uh, you know, are suffering from a, you know, X, Y, and Z, and then we tend to do A, B, and C, and that's what helps them. And that's not wrong or bad. That's great because they can think, yeah, you do understand people in my situation and you have helped people just like me. But each client is not the same. So it's then, <laughs> it's then doubling down with that initial uh, amount of trust that they have going, yeah, this person really knows what my problems are and how to potentially help me and some of the frustrations and so on. But it's then going, okay, so that's what's on average. Now, how are you unique? So as they say, get curious, you know, get curious by asking genuine questions about how do you see, you want to see the pictures in people's heads of how they see themselves, their situation, and even you and your solution that you're offering and how they see it fitting 
with solving the problem that they have, whatever that problem might be. So that's the starting point because you could have several different candidates or prospects that look the same on paper, right? That you put the same label on and yet how do they look at their problem is quite radically different. And if you treated them in the same way, you're not building that rapport and that trust to the same level with each of them. And by definition, then you're, you're losing those opportunities because when you start to build those opportunities, when you start to move it and mix a little bit of the economic with the social. And when I say social, I don't mean you have to go to beers, go, go for beers with all your clients. I mean, it can be fun, but you know, that's not what I'm talking about necessarily, but it's that there's a level of, as I say, you need to know, like, and trust, you know, know, like, and trust. It's one of these things people blast out, but how do you actually do that? How do you increase people knowing, liking, and trusting you, right? And people say, oh, you act in a transparent way. It's the same with a lot of negotiations. So if they say, oh, emotions are very important, but then they don't tell you how to manage your emotions, how to, how to give signals of respect, how to give signals of goodwill. They don't, they don't really get into the specifics of doing that sort of thing, or better yet, how to do it better than we just naturally do as humans. It's a little bit like in school, they, know, they rarely teach you how to actually learn, how to actually use memory. You know, what are, okay, there's a little bit of study skills, but you don't really learn that. You just presume that you kind of know that. They certainly didn't do it in my day, I presume in your day. So no. it's kind of the same with a lot of these negotiations. Oh, just build a relationship, you know, be very friendly. It's like, okay, well, I can do that, but it's more in the specifics. All right. So so I don't know if that, if that addresses some of your question there. So, yeah. So let's, let's talk about some of those specifics. Where do you see people make the biggest sort of transformation? If, if someone's coming to you and um, they're engaging with you and you're, you're coaching them through how to improve their skills in, in negotiation, what are some of the few things that seem to really move the needle? Right. Well, it, it's, as we were talking about earlier, it's this notion of, good can very much be the enemy of great. Uh, so that, because uh, I've worked with a number of litigation lawyers and corporate finance people, you know, uh, so they're, they're, they're often equity partners. So as I said, they've skin in the game. So a win can pay off very well for them equally. If there's a loss or something falls through, that can really hurt, you know. So where I see that instead of moving that needle is where they realize, because they're often very good or at least very adequate at what they do. And it's that sudden awareness that, oh, I've done this, you know, four out of five times and it works really well until it doesn't. Or nine out of 10 times and then, oh, crash. And they don't know why and they don't know what to do different, differently at all. And that's kind of one of the reasons where, where I'm able to help them. And one of the things we often discover is that they're only using a primary and sometimes a secondary mode of being. They adopt a sort of role or an attitude or a style, if you will, that they may not be in all of life, but they just tend to adopt this. And it's something that for years of training people in all sorts of different areas of leadership development, you see all over the shop, right? It's all over the place, which is people take strategies without work that have worked in certain situations, and then they over apply them to situations where they're less appropriate or just absolutely not right for that situation or prospect. So they're not able to adapt. They do the same thing and they're not able to adapt to the needs 
of that prospect because they, on the surface, they look the same as all the other time it worked. And so it's it's opening up those receptions, opening up that ability on their side to be able to be someone, be a different role than they might normally go to. And then on the client side, they're able to actually engage with the client in a certain way that they go, ah, okay, that's why you need you need a slightly different service. And it might just be as, sim- as simple as they need to be talked to in a different way. It's one of, like particularly with litigation lawyers, like that, you know, you want the little terrier going, Rawr, you know, this, this beast on your side, the attack dog stuff, right? And again, that works very well for them. But suddenly you're saying, well, there are other modes to being and being able to change with those feedback loops of what's working with the other lawyer and the other lawyer's client and then your own client. There's lots of different relationships going on there and having the freedom and awareness to actually listen to what's happening and adapt and, and, and change the mood, being able to, as I often say to people, we don't want to dictate, but we do wish to direct our interactions, direct our negotiations. You know, and you mentioned before that an awful lot of these, uh, what you would consider and I would consider negotiations, a lot of people don't tend to. So people, you know, who are litigation lawyers or corporate finance or, as you said, real estate, these kind of guys tend to think, yeah, I'm negotiating here. This is a big deal. (laughs) Whereas a lot of people in other situations, it's just, oh yeah, you know, I'm service-based business. We just, we meet with the client, they have a need. We we look, work out what the, oh, you need tick, 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 tick of checkbox type of thing. They don't need these few things. And then we start doing the service and everything's fine. And again, a lot of the time, everything is fine. But you know, how's your follow-up? What happens when you drop the ball? Because this is one of the times that these things tend to show up is when everything's rosy and happy days, you know, that everything's rosy and, and you get a pretty good deal and things ticking over nicely. But what happens when suddenly there's an error, there's a misunderstanding or there's a fault often on our side or on your side where, you know, which will inevitably happen over time. And think about it, if there's low trust or just not particular trust built People can be a bit apathetic and be, oh yeah, that's not really good enough. Mm, I don't know. Mm, these kind of things. Maybe we should look for another vendor. Maybe we should look for another service provider in this area. You know, oh yeah, that was that's not really on. Mm. Whereas when there's high trust, people go, oh no, I know Steve. Don't worry, we'll get him on the phone. It must be a little misunderstanding. All right, these things happen. It's only human. We we can fix it. We can fix it. It's fine. So they attribute things to circumstances rather than so much to character. And they, they give you the benefit of the doubt when there's that bit more of a rapport, that bit more of a relationship established, where one of the big things is in that relationship establishes, and it sounds so basic, but they actually feel understood, they feel listened to, they feel heard, that you actually understand where they're coming from. You understand the struggles they've had with similar people in your position as a vendor before, or service provider before. And then they think, okay, this person is a bit different, right? So that's where you start to grow that, that feeling that they know me, I like them, I trust them, you know? As I said, that, that's really the starting point to a lot of these things is, is, okay, there's a tactical and strategic level, 
But a lot of this is attitudinal. You know, it's your mindset. Just like we talked about on the expert panel that you were very, uh, very graciously on there recently with me. It's all about your mindset. It's how you you set up the filter and your attitude. It's it's so interesting because, I, you know, we've had this interview on the calendar for a little while and I've been thinking about negotiation and the perception, I think, for a lot of people with negotiation is that, all right, I'm going to go in and I'm going to use these tactics and I'm going to walk out with what I want. But that's not at all what you're describing. You're re- what you're really describing is first understanding the other person and using that understanding to create trust and relationship. and and through that sort of curiosity, understanding what is valuable to them, what they really want the most out of this interaction. And then you're tailoring everything, your entire approach to that. It's so simple, but I think for most people that, you know, when they think I'm going to go negotiate, I've got to be tough as nails and hard nosed and, you know, never take no for an answer and all that sort of thing. Very true. And and I should put in the caveat here. This is in no way being weak. Because <laughs> that's the fear of a lot of people. Oh, I don't want to get outplayed, you know, I don't want to get screwed in this deal, man. I don't want to screw it. Right. So and dead right. You know, none of this is is what what you might call overly trusting. Now I do talk about win-win. And I don't want to sound like a complete psychopath, but one of the problems with win-win is that very good negotiators go, oh yeah, win-win, yeah, win-win, man. Yeah, oh, yeah, we're all friends here, blah, 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 blah. And then the next thing you know, they go, oh, this person's great. Yeah, the next thing you know, you've given away a ton of your concessions with very little in return. You go, what just happened, right? So it's not the aggressive negotiators who often, uh, who often prosper in that way because they're easy to spot, right? You feel kind of pushed and bullied and attacked, right? It's the ones who are really charming. So win-win is the destination. It's not so much the starting point. Building trust and discovering what your client particularly wants is, and how you can add value to each other is really the starting point. So it's trust, but check. It's trust, but don't be overly foolish in that trust. All right. So that is the caveat. So we're, we are protecting ourselves here. I call it, um, I used it just the, 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 the metaphor, if you will, of, you know, think like a shrink. So how does a psychologist or, or a psychiatrist or even a coach when they're with a client, how do they act? right? They're, they're fully present, fully engaged, but they're emotionally non-reactive. That's not to say they're not emotional. They can laugh at a joke. They can be playful. You know, they can be very light. They can be very serious. They can be whatever it needs, but they're not merely reacting to the emotional state of the other side. And so they're extremely difficult to manipulate. And that's the point. So that they're in, so this is what I I help my clients do. I help them get in their own power to, as I say, help direct, not dictate. Because when the other side are talking, you're gathering intelligence, you're gathering information that's valuable. You go, oh yeah, people, you know, it's funny, no one in your position ever asked me that before. That's a good question. Well, blah, blah, blah. And they're giving you all this gold, right? And you're then able, as I said, to sculpt your response around their need as they see it. And this is all completely ethical. It's actually more than ethical. It's it's having them feel, as I said earlier, heard and understood. 
But on the flip side of that, it's you getting that understanding, getting that intelligence, those extra insights that a lot of your competitors probably don't bother or don't think to get. So as I said, you know, that's where you're in that service-based, maybe that service-based side. If it's more of a two parties coming together where it's not just, as I said, a service that's happening, where it's more of a back and forth interaction, that's where you need to protect yourself that bit more. You know, that's where you need to be more aware of of very skilled negotiators um, and a lot of the ploys. And a lot of this, as I said, with managing your emotions, people think, oh, well, you know, when I talk to clients or, or prospects, you know, nobody gets hugely angry. You know, nobody shouts at me. You know, that doesn't happen. And and that's very true because those are the, the dramatic examples uh, one might think of. But it's more so the little subtleties of manipulation. Those little, when you give a price, the sort of the little intakes of breath, you know, oh, that's very steep. Oh, I don't know. Oh, that's much higher than we expected. And you're like, oh, like, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> sort of the disappointed parent type of thing, you know, all of these little cues that are firing in the back of our head. Oh, right. You know, okay, we'll do better on that. All that sort of stuff, all those little. Oh, yeah. Mm. The feigning of apathy. Yeah, I'm not sure I really want this. Mm. All of this sort of stuff, all those little games people play. It's being able to inoculate yourself to that again without getting bitter about it or frustrated. You know, Uh, as I said, don't get mad or sad, get curious. And it's about staying in your power and being able to engage with them. And and, because if they're genuinely being manipulative or trying these little games, or they're actually really reacting in that way. Either way, stay in your power, but it allows them to think, oh, okay, that didn't work. I, I can just be honest with this person. Seems actually like they're solid, but they're they're a good guy. They're a good, good woman. I can I can deal with this person. I can this is there's something here. We can actually build something here. This could be very, very profitable for everyone here, you know. So it it sounds like to really be successful with this, that you've got to kind of be at, at a point where in, in the negotiation, you're okay with walking away at any point. You need to have that power within yourself that if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But the only way it's going to happen is if we can create a creative solution that's very good for the other party and very good for us. Is that kind of the, the very much stance? Very much. I mean, I mean, one of the reasons I don't mention that that quite as much. It's interesting you asked that one, Steve. That refers to uh, I don't use a huge amount of jargon, but there's a lot of good, solid, you know, negotiation established uh, terms, and that one is you know the BATNA, the best alternative to negotiated agreement. Basically, what's your alternative? And one of the reasons I kind of don't mention that is when people know and have read some of the, the the core kind of books and ideas or done sort of courses, short courses on negotiation. BATNA is one of the first things that comes up. So, you know, to have that idea of what are my alternatives to this? So that exactly, as you say, so that you're not desperate, you're, you're, you know what your other options are, and then you can weigh up what is being said to you with what your options are. And hopefully you, st- you only stick with it if, uh, if it's, if it's advantageous. And, and that's absolutely true. But one of the things, it, it, when I get clients to do that exercise, which is absolutely valuable, I always counterbalance it with, 
what we call the what now, <laughs> the, the worst, of, right? Uh, what are your what are what are the what are the drawbacks of having to go to those other options? Because people often it's it's almost it's not like it, but it's a little bit like going on a date and saying, "No, I have loads of other options. I have two more dates this week, so you know, impress me." <laughs> Right. The other side would be like, what the hell? You know, <laughs> you know, there's an element of it's not a way for me to really want to love you here, you know. <laughs> so it doesn't it doesn't really build that rapport and that trust when people are overly aggressive with their other options. So it pays to actually have that in balance. You want it as a backup, yes, to frame whatever offer they're making you, absolutely. But you also want to keep that. Uh, those alternatives in, in some form of balance. And as I said, not unnecessarily be, be uh, upsetting to the other side. You think, well, oh, you know, okay, if you don't want it, fine, I'll move off to someone who does. Because as you said, they also probably have their BATNA so that you may have burnt that bridge, you know? So it's something to bear in mind. Very interesting. I'm sure we could go on for hours on the topic because um, to me, this is fascinating. I think it's it's so closely tied to actually to what we do in marketing. It's really creatively, it's using curiosity and creativity, I think, to to find ways to help people. Absolutely. And and the better you get at this, the more prosperous you're going to be. So tell us a little bit about Goliath Negotiation, about the programs and, and, and how you help folks and where they can find out more information. Goliath Negotiation, as I said, is this combination of those different elements of coaching skills, being able to be imbalance in yourself in your own power and so that even with subtle things you're you're not manipulative you're not neither you're not manipulative and and you're you're immune to their potential manipulation but as i said it's opening up the that innovation so that that sense of ability to build rapport and then not just you trying to think of the creation uh, creativity and opportunities but when you're of a certain level of as i say no knowing liking and trusting from the other side there getting in the spirit of things and saying, oh, well, how about if we add this or how about if we add that? And, and suddenly they're being equal partners in creating a more unique and valuable interaction, valuable deal. So it's hugely important. But as I said, the, the Goliath program, that's kind of what we talked about as assets base. It's really the essence going through it. And I work people through uh, this five-stage model, which kind of goes as a spiral, if you will, through different levels. And a lot of it is about preparation, both in a traditional uh, negotiation preparation and, as we say, that psychological edge. So people are just that bit more prepared when they go in to some of these interactions than that there's, there's far less likely to be knocked off balance by some of the curveballs that can come up. Uh, another area, as I said, is is create, as I call it, create, where we're learning all these different methodologies for finding value. And then, as I said, in engage, it's all about doing it, all of that in in the real, where we're actually, you know, actually learning how to apply that dynamically with the other side, where we're kind of feeling each other out uh, and trying to, as we're building that rapport and we're, as I said, just moving that little bit beyond the pure economical side. And a large amount of that then also is about controlling one's emotions because the more we control uh, and are aware of our emotional states, the more that we can then influence the thinking, emotions, and even the behavior 
of the other side. And again, in a very ethical and structured, you know, constructive way, I should say. Uh, but, you know, that that's a hell of a skill to have when you're able to do that in a more, in a more as I said, uh, strategic, authentic, but strategic way. There's a lot of ways to do that. And then lastly, as I said, is all about sealing the deal. So all about sort of how to hammer out and, and pin down the deal in a way that is beneficial, obviously, to both sides, it goes without saying, but in a way that makes it very easy to adjust it to be a better fit as time goes on so that it evolves with the need of the other side uh, and your own, indeed. And then just on that, you know, the, there's a very much an element, just, just to speak about it for a moment, of what, what you call the dealmaker mindset versus the implementer mindset. And the dealmaker mindset, there's, there's a lot of bravery there that, you know, you're willing to make an offer and ask the questions and all this sort of stuff. And then, you know, get people to actually gradually when they're ready, but commit to working together. So there's a lot of very admirable and useful characteristics there. But often the dealmaker mindset spills into too much short-termism, that you're wanting to, you know, get it over the line and get it done. But then you're not really thinking, well, what does that mean for the implementation of the deal? What does that mean for the, whether, and this is particularly prevalent when the people doing the deal aren't the ones who are implementing it or delivering on it, right? <laughs> and when, when I work in that sort of structure, usually in medium size or, or larger organizations, one of the first things I do is get those deal makers to actually have a conversation with the people that deliver and have those questions like, what do, what do I do that will either make your day a lot easier or ruin your day? And it is amazing some of the tiny things that just can make something go so much smoother or totally ruin it. And I noticed this with a lot of software companies, Steve. Software are notorious for this. So the sales guys will be in there doing the deal and they will just go, oh, the last thing, you know, one of the great ones when some of buyers do is, oh, one last thing, you know, one last little thing. And then we could, when they're about to sign, just one, one last thing and then we can get it done. And whatever the concession is and the sales guys are like, yeah, 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 no problem. Just sign the damn thing, right? So it's that little last energy, which is the most common thing sales do. There's a whole list of them, but that's the most successful and most common one. Just one last thing. But the salespeople, they don't know what it actually means in, in the profit margin. And they don't realize, oh, you've actually just slashed your profit margin. Remember one deal that I heard about, I was, this was, I was in the aftermath, 65% they slashed the profit margin wow. without realizing, because they didn't know. Right? They didn't know because they don't know about how many developer hours that took to create. So by cutting the price, wow. so it's them. That's the other thing when is learning about your own business. That what is the margin on what? What do I have very little movement on? What do I have huge amounts of movement on? So those are some of those foundational things that I tend to bring people through, so that they know where they can give away things for for relatively little or exchange for relatively little, and other things as I said, that really cost. But it's also the opportunity of things that you do give away for free. That you think, oh yeah, just give, throw that in. Whereas in actual fact, that could be a 10 grand a month retainer on its own because you haven't <laughs> seen the value to the other side. So that's the flip side of that is that because it's of high perceived value to the other side, you could actually, never mind throwing it in for free, you could actually charge it as a premium for pure profit. So it can, some, some clients have changed 
the way they bill change the, the the way they charge for their service offerings depending on that so with that that just to say there's a there's a lot of these things have an entry point and then a, a certain dynamic awareness uh through them so sorry to, to answer your question steve that was fantastic no that was awesome to, to get back to it so to answer your question you know the starting point i say to many people is quite simply www.almcbride.com slash mini course and very simply you get a uh, one of the first few pages of my negotiation cheat sheet there's a much longer version but you get the first few pages a very simple but very important foundational steps and then as i said for about a week or so you get an email every day or so which is all about the psychological edge of negotiation it's just often told through principle and then a little story so that you're more likely to remember it uh, and, and people tend to enjoy it so that that's usually a good starting point as I said, if people are interested in in reaching out, seeing if we might be a good fit to work together, if you have a particular problem, you might want another perspective on, you know, almcbride.com, you can you can find about, out about me there. So, Very good. We'll link that up in the show notes. And uh, thanks, thanks for sharing the, the resources of the mini course. I think that'll help people a lot. This has been fantastic. I think this is, it's such an important topic because if you do this well, you have the opportunity to create such differentiation that your competitors cannot copy because they can't see it on the surface. You know, exactly. it's not, a, it's not on your website. It's not in your spec sheet. It's not in the industry standard operating parameters. It's, it's how you're able to go below the radar and add value. And I, I think it's just a, an important skill. So thanks for sharing some of your wisdom with us today. Just as a last thought on that, you know, it's essentially, I have the book behind me here somewhere, it's a blue ocean strategy, you know, it's instead of competing directly, you're carving out that own niche. So this is, a lot of this is carving out a niche without necessarily having to, in a marketing way, define exactly what that niche is. But when you're in the interactions, that the client feels that difference, that's a key thing. So yes, so uh, w one last thing I'd just like to, to point out, which is something we were touching on earlier is, you know, a lot of people don't feel that they're actually negotiating. But I say this, negotiation, persuasion, ethical influencing, a lot of them, so there's a lot of overlap there. I'd say if you are regularly in a professional capacity, trying to understand where people are coming from and have them see an opportunity or, a, or or an outcome, a situation, or even a service that you offer in the way that you see it, with the benefits that you see, and you want them to see the similar, then I would argue you're doing a form of negotiation, <laughs> right? So it's the classic thing where, you know, I come, I want a can of Coke. If you just sell a can of Coke, that's fine. But, you know, what are the other opportunities around that? Well, is it really Coke that you need? You know, and you know, it's all of those sort of ways of helping people see greater potential with your service, with your offering, and going from there. Simple as that. I love it. That's brilliant. Well, thank you again for investing some time with us. Al McBride, go to almcbride.com and check it out. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. We'd love to uh, hear your comments there and uh, it helps other people discover the show. So thanks very much. Super stuff. Thank you very much, Steve. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating on iTunes at unstoppableceo.net forward slash iTunes.